Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Andrew Neal, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by a woman who went from being brought up in poverty in the northeast of England to working in the White House and testifying before Congress in President Trump's first impeachment inquiry. Fiona Hill is a foreign policy expert who specializes in Russia and Vladimir Putin. She's worked for Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and as an advisor to Donald Trump when he was in the Oval Office. Her book, There's Nothing for You Here, recounts her childhood in the decaying coal mining town of Bishop Auckland, her move to Moscow, then Harvard, and on to the White House. During the interview, we discuss Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, his motivations, and her assertion that her accent and working-class background limited her professional chances in the United Kingdom, and that America offered the opportunities her home country couldn't. This is the backstory from Tortoise. Fiona Hill, let's start with Ukraine. Is there any way in which this ends well for President Putin? Well, look, I think part of the problem, Andrew, is that our definition of ending well and Putin's definitions of success or victory are just remarkably different. Because for Putin, teaching Ukraine a lesson, teaching the rest of us a lesson, and in many respects, subjugating Ukraine, even destroying Ukraine so that it can't exist as an independent country with its territory intact, so it's dismembered, in other words, and as a country that's forging its own path in international affairs, is part of the goal of launching this invasion. So basically a Ukraine that's left in rubble, that's dependent on handouts from the international community, that's uh, left in uh, fragments, uh, territory, uh, and again is facing a long-term confrontation with Russia, irrespective of what that looks like for Russia itself, can be cast as a victory for Putin because, again, part of his goal in launching the invasion of Ukraine was to make sure that it didn't succeed. So it's clear that Mr Putin wanted, I think, either to reduce Ukraine to the status of a puppet state or even to subsume it into some kind of greater Russia. Are you saying now that that's unlikely to be the successful war aims now? But if he kind of neutralizes the country and reduces chunks of it to rubble, 
that that can be claimed a victory? Is that now the war aim? Is that the fallback war aim? Well, that might have been part of the goals to start with. Uh, But yes, I mean, I think that that's what we're seeing unfolding right now. Putin is the kind of person who has a broad goal and different ways of achieving it. So he's a contingency planner. He's not a uh, Clausewitzian military strategist. He's somebody who, uh, you know, as just said, uh, his goal was to subjugate Ukraine in whatever fashion that was possible. And he will adapt his basic prosecution of the war into whatever it is that he can attain at that particular moment and then wait to see and reassess where things are headed as to, you know, what he does for the next phase. So right now we are absolutely seeing the efforts to consolidate control, military control over the eastern part of Ukraine, Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk, all of the cities, the port cities around the Sea of Azov, like Mariupol and the the other cities beside it, which have been reduced to rubble, making sure to consolidate the swath of territory to the north of the Crimean Peninsula. And also, if he can, exert control over the Black Sea region, all the way down to Odessa and even further, because there is a chunk of Ukraine after Odessa that connects to Moldova and the secessionist area of Transnistria with Moldova. So it denies any access with that kind of formulation for Ukraine to the Black Sea. And that seems to have been part of the Russian plan since 2014, to be frank. When he went into Crimea. That's correct, because at that point in 2014, when the annexation of Crimea took place, we saw an effort by the Kremlin to seed revolt, uh, insurgencies and revolutionary movements you know, hopefully through you know, political activists on the ground in Ukraine itself, Russian speakers, in all of those places that we're seeing the Russian military moving in today, under the framework, the rubric of uh, Nova Russia, New Russia. This is a Russian imperial exercise in many respects. It's something that Catherine the Great did. She tried to create a new Russia, Nova Russia, in that same territory after annexing Crimea from the Ottoman Empire you know, back in the day. And Putin was thwarted in 2014 because there wasn't a great upsurge of support, even then for the Russian political subversion. And we'd all petered out, apart from the rebel movements, the secessionist movements in Donetsk and Luhansk. And even then, that was partial within those administrative regions. So Ukraine was dismembered then in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. That was a success for Putin and not a shot fired. Gets control of Crimea, the peninsula can project power into the Black Sea. But now we're you know, seeing through this military action, that effort to take control of that territory where there was that more of a politically focused, subversive activity in 2014. And one could make the argument, you know, as you just did there, that that was perhaps you know, part of the war aims all along. And that you know, some people are even saying that the full invasion of Kiev and elsewhere, but that's because the Russians are saying that too, was in, in a way a diversion because that was all along the goal of uh, Putin. But as I was uh, saying earlier that you know, really Putin has these broad goals and he'll do whatever he can at the moment, whatever is achievable. But the whole aim is the same. Subjugate Ukraine, dismember Ukraine, make it impossible for Ukraine to exist as an independent country doing its own thing in world affairs. But even if he succeeds in that, and it's as yet not certain that he will, you might call it a more limited war aims. Uh, he doesn't get Kiev, but he has certainly caused major problems and occupied big chunks of Ukraine. Even if he does all that, I mean, has any leader of a major country made a more catastrophic mistake with this invasion? Has he not done incalculable damage to himself, Russia's standing in the world, to the Russian economy? I mean, if he does what you've described to Ukraine, I mean, he and Russia will have pariah status. Absolutely. Look, I mean, from everybody's 
Elsa's perspective and every rational perspective from, again, our rationale, that's exactly the case. But for Putin, and if you look at some of the things that he said, you know, for example, he doesn't want to see a world in which there is no demand for Russia, a world in which Russia isn't a dominant player. And he certainly wanted to dominate Eurasia, um, you know, Europe um, in large uh, respects as well, particularly the eastern part of Europe. And if he can't dominate it, then destruction is um, his other alternative. And I, I mean, from our perspective, of course, that seems absurd. It's the ultimate ferric victory. But that's, you know, basically from Putin's point of view, he threatened Ukraine, he menaced Ukraine, he has delivered what uh, he had threatened, and he's taught everyone a lesson a lesson that he can be completely ruthless and that he's you know, willing to go the whole way um, in terms of wreaking havoc and carnage to basically press his own agenda. Now, the knock-on effects from this, of course, as we're saying, they're catastrophic. And for Russia, the prior status, the destruction of the economy, or the economy as not, not completely, of course, but the economies which has been built up over the last 30 years since the 1990s with incredible effort, all of the things that um, Russian ordinary business people and ordinary Russians have built for themselves, not just Russian oligarchs, you know, we tend to fixate on. All the promises that he made about making Russians solvent and uh, a major European and global player again, that seems to be completely out of the window. And of course, he is, as we're, we're talking about all the time now, basically inflicting the potential of famine on the world. Higher gas prices, higher petrol prices higher food prices by destroying, in many respects, the potential of Ukraine as the breadbasket to Europe. The planting season for Ukrainian grain is out the window now in this time of war. Russia, Kazakhstan, as well as Ukraine, being the major grain producers of the Black Sea region, huge swathes of Africa dependent upon them. All of these things all kind of come together in one hell of a mess, frankly. But Putin, right now, does not seem to care so much about that. He's not really open to being persuaded to take a different tack because he wants to be able to declare a victory and to say that he's achieved his aims. Well, you've said that uh, Mr. Putin lives in his own bubble, that he's a germaphobe, that he's got a tendency to shoot the messenger. When I first read that, I thought it was Donald Trump you were describing, but it was President Putin. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of similarities among all kinds of people. <laughs> all that must surely have got worse since the invasion went wrong. Well, yes. And I mean, look, there's been a lot of speculation about Putin and Putin's health. The video, you know, last week that was uh, going around was showing him gripping the table in a rather strange way with his right hand. And people said he was juggling his foot. Perhaps he has Parkinson's. Again, we have to be very careful about that speculation. I mean, it may well be the case that he's unwell, but, you know, a lot of that is then wishful thinking and wondering whether, you know, as you're saying, that some of the you know, the weaknesses, the frailties, the vulnerabilities of Putin might be brought out by all of this, that this kind of might change the tide of things. I've actually seen him, you know, on many occasions, because I have, you know, spent quite a bit of time not just observing him, but actually seeing him in action. I've seen him gripping not just tables, but chairs in strange ways with his hands before. You know, maybe these might just be personal physical quirks. As far as I could see on the leg issue, he was tapping his foot, looking more like with impatience. You know, um, when I almost kind of was joking with someone that it looked almost like he was trying to press some ejector button under the table, that maybe Sergei Shoigu, the defence uh, minister who was meeting with him, if he didn't like what he said, he was going to press a button and Sergei Shoigu would be, you know, somehow thrown out of the room, propelled through the ceiling or something. Putin's always got that kind of look in which he looks irritated with the people that he's meeting with. He slouches back in his chair. But it's true, look, 
He seems to have been under tremendous strain, as many of us have been during COVID. He's been isolated. He's definitely been paranoid about um, catching COVID or anything else because he's become the wild card in the political system. He has basically become the only person, as he says it, and the people around him that stands between Russia and and the abyss. The state is me and there's no successor in sight because there can't be. Because Putin doesn't want to look like a lame duck, because being a lame duck president in Russia means you're a dead duck, because it means that somebody's trying to manoeuvre around and to try to take your place. And if it's somebody seeking to take his place in the context of basically a wartime scenario, it's much more likely to be one of the hard men, uh, the security people um, around Putin in that term. And so he's probably being extraordinarily watchful. And, you know, trying to keep ahead of the game with everybody, making sure that nobody else can take advantage. So even these, this talk about illness is probably exacerbating the situation for Putin. It sounds, Fiona Hill, as if what you're saying is that uh, if Mr. Putin brings Russia down, then he's going to try and bring the rest of us down with him. And I, I wonder how that can change, because it's, it's not the Russian way, is it, to, to put a bullet in its leader's head? No, it's absolutely not. I mean, yes, I mean, Russia has its history of palace coups during uh, the Romanov and you know, General Tsarist period. But, you know, if you think in the Soviet period, either leaders tended to leave by you know, their death in office, quite a few of them. And if there was a, a kind of palace coup, so to speak, they were sort of moved over and somebody else come in. You think of Khrushchev, for example. Yes. And, you know, you could, one could sort of see that scenario. But, you know, look, uh, for that to happen, There has to be a lot of blame apportioned to Putin, the very small coterie of people who made the decision to invade Ukraine. And I don't think they're going to see that just yet. We're seeing a lot of rallying around the flag, rallying around Putin because of the propaganda and the way that the invasion has been depicted as a special military operation. I think a lot of people in Russia, uh, those who haven't left and have obviously been opposed to the war, do believe that the war is all NATO's fault, the West's fault, the United States' fault that Ukraine is collateral damage. They don't believe a lot of the things that are happening. It's going to take some time for that to filter. They think that the sanctions are meant to persecute Russia, to bring it to its knees. That's what Putin's been telling them. You know, for years and years, that propaganda's really had an impact. And so it's really going to take some time for this to sink in. It's going to have to be as a result of the inability of the Russian military to get traction and for the people around Putin in the actual system itself to see that this is not going anywhere and to then find a way of sort of declaring victory and changing the whole perspective. And that means that we have to stay united, we the West, and that is in itself extraordinarily difficult. So it's dependent on us as well. It does seem that under Mr. Putin, Russia has gone back to being a sort of one-man band. I mean, post-Stalin, which was pretty much a one-man band, Russia was governed, of course it had the general secretary, the names we all knew, but it was a kind of collective leadership in the Politburo. Am I right in thinking that there is no equivalent of the Politburo now under Mr. Putin? He's the man and that's it. Yes, that's what makes it so dangerous on the one hand and also so fragile on the other, because Putin has no political party that supports him. Um, He's basically not even a movement behind him. The parliament, the Duma is a rubber stamp. United Russia, the ruling party, is not even part of it. He's not even the head of it. There's only the constitution and his popularity. And the small group of people around him, obviously, they don't even function that much as a brain trust, although obviously some of them do have some influence. But we've seen in those bizarre setups on television about him giving them orders, them sitting on one end of the vast table and him at the other, which is meant to convey a sense of power and isolation and him making all the key decisions. 
But there's also, uh, within all of that uh, embedded, we also have to bear in mind, about 60% of the Russian workforce, the Russian population, is dependent on the state. So if the state runs out of revenues and the state gets into trouble, it does eventually have some kind of impact and would have an impact on his popularity. Because people work for the bureaucracy, the Russian bureaucracy is huge and has even grown under Putin. Because in a way, he's creating all of these levels of dependency of people on him himself. And look, at different points in his own presidency, Putin has said it's a huge mistake to have everything in the hands of one man. That was one of the rationales for bringing Dmitry Medvedev into the fold and making him president and creating that weird tandem that we've all forgotten about, you know, 10 years ago before he came back into office again. He's constantly talked about creating more of a sort of a privy council. The National Security Council equivalent was supposed to be that. Bringing more people in, devolving authority and responsibility and accountability. And none of that seems to have happened. And so, you know, we know that around the world, every time you look at a system like this, even if the person in uh, who's the, the, the case in point, be it Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Maduro or Chavez before them in Venezuela, the Castros in Cuba, an incredible amount of fragility builds up in the system. I mean, they can keep on going for a long time, but at some point something has to give and partly what has to give is Putin himself. Now, you advised three U.S. presidents on Russia, Mr. Bush, uh, the second Mr. Bush, Mr. Obama and Mr. Trump. Did they get anything right? Well, look, I have to uh, clarify very quickly that I didn't do much of advising of Trump because he didn't really listen to anybody. So that would kind of, you know, I think one should be much more modest in <laughs> describing what you actually kind of did at that point. And in terms of, you know, uh, Bush and Obama, I mean, these were all in, you know, very clearly defined frames. I was the National Intelligence Office at the time, you know, going and giving them, you know, assessments. I think if you look at the longer trend of US and Russia relations, there's been an awful lot of wishful thinking about the trajectory of Russia for a long time. That's why we have to be very careful about engaging in it now. There's often been an assessment that you could wait Russia out and that Russia was incredibly weak and that Russia wasn't going to prevail on the international stage because not factoring in, you know, this propensity, which we've just talked about, as if, you know, Russia was going to go down, then it was going to take everybody down with it, which is the kind of the thinking of Putin. And Putin is the constant through those three presidencies in which you know, I was playing this role. Putin's been in power now for 22 years. He's not that much of a surprise. We've seen him in action for all this time. He came into the presidency against the backdrop of a brutal war in Chechnya within Russia's own territory, in which the population of Chechnya were brutalized and Grozny, the regional capital, was reduced to rubble. At many times, we've seen him you know, carry out all kinds of atrocious assassinations the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko with polonium here in London, the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter uh, Yulia in Salisbury and the killing of Dawn Sturgis, a British citizen, the assassinations of all kinds of uh, people, Boris Nemtsov, former deputy prime minister of Russia, gunned down brutally on a bridge in front of the Kremlin, for example. Every time you look around, you can see signs of just how ruthless Putin is. And yet we, over successive administrations on the US and in the Europe, have continued to try to do business as usual with Russia under Putin. You know, not bearing in mind that this guy is a KGB operative who has a grab bag of dirty tricks and has no checks and balances around him. And so I think, you know, where people have got it wrong is really by not paying sufficient attention all the time to the way that Putin's going to react to things, you know, judging how he perceives things and trying to assess what we're going to do about it. I mean, part of that problem is because you know, as you just said, was three different presidents. 
um, there's more presidents who've kind of gone, you know, through Putin because Clinton, you know, obviously had the the, the very beginning of uh, Putin's presidency, two terms of George W. Bush, two uh, terms of Barack Obama, one term of Trump now, you know, with Biden and so many national security advisors and senior staff. And, you know, people talk about the deep state in the United States. There isn't one. It's a very thin state. So you've not had any kind of consistency of dealing with him. And we really needed to have mechanisms that, you know, were knitting us all together in the West the, with NATO, the European Union, sort of constant attention to this, you know, really very hard, we used to call it the hard target, the very difficult country and leadership to deal with. So we should have, you know, been really paying proper and due attention all this time. You argued against uh, offering Ukraine a path to NATO membership when George W. Bush was president. Now, assuming Ukraine survives this invasion intact, emerges still as a sovereign nation, would that still be your view? So just to clarify, this was Ukraine and Georgia and the basically appeal for a membership action plan to NATO in 2008. And the circumstances of it bear uh, assessing. So first of all, in the run-up to the NATO summit in Bucharest, which was in April 2008, Georgia and Ukraine had given no indication in the months before that that they were going to ask for a membership action plan. And when they did, um, in January of that year, it was very late in the game. And I was a national intelligence officer at the time, and the team that I was working with assessed that there was incredible opposition to Ukraine and Georgia being offered a NATO membership action plan at that juncture, and there was no way that that could be overcome. And so the advice, in an analytical sense, was don't put it on the agenda because you're not going to get it and the Russians will take that as a sign of weakness and then will act accordingly. And that's exactly what we saw happen. We saw that that was put on the agenda in Bucharest. There was a lot of opposition and a compromise came out of all of this, led by you know, some of the US allies that basically said, OK, Ukraine and Georgia are not ready right now for a membership action plan, but they will one day become members of NATO. We've never done that before for any other country, any other aspirant, but not now. And there was no plan. And what happened? Within four months, Russia invaded Georgia. So the whole point of when we should have been considering this was, yes, if you're going to offer Ukraine and Georgia a membership action plan, they've got to already start thinking about security guarantees. What are you going to do in the instant that Russia takes some action? And what are we going to do over the longer term? We didn't do any of that. And that's been part of our problem the whole way along with the expansion of NATO. But by the end of last year, the beginning of this year, there was no prospect of Ukraine joining NATO certainly not in the foreseeable future. And we had been told we better not offer that anyway because it will only provoke Mr. Putin. But we didn't offer it and there was no prospect, but he still invaded. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just proves that it's not all about NATO. It's something, you know, much deeper and fundamental. All of these things are melded together in Putin's mind. NATO is just an affront for him. He can't even accept for himself that other countries wanted to join NATO. He always has to say it's NATO aggression as if there was some sort of freestanding NATO entity, that the general secretary was some, you know, kind of autocratic dictator who's forcing countries to come into NATO. I mean, we know that that's not how it works. But for Putin, the idea that countries would have an alternative that used to be part of the Russian Empire of the Soviet Union, that for him, he can't imagine that because as far as he sees it, they're all part of Russia and the Russian world. And so Putin is, in many respects, going down the well-trod post-imperial, post-colonial path that we've seen time and time again in history. He thinks Ukraine belongs to Russia. Ukrainians are Russians. He can't believe that Ukrainians, who in the imperial period called little Russians, you know, want to be something else, want to be citizens of a different country, want to chart their own path. He thinks they have to be right back in the fold again. And so everything that he is doing 
is basically done on the predicate that these countries are not real. As he told George Bush in 2008 in Bucharest, when Ukraine was trying to get this membership action plan, he said, you know, George, Ukraine isn't a real country. Part of it's in Eastern Europe and the other part was given to us. This is all about repossessing um, property. It's all about the people. And he's treating Ukrainians now like traitors, somebody to be destroyed like he would do with Alexander Litvinenko with Polonium or Sergei Skripal with Novichok because they dared to cross Russia and to forget who they are. He thinks that they're subjects of the Russian imperium, not citizens of their own country. You've said that uh, Mr. Putin might well be prepared to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. If he does, how should the West respond? Well, we should be getting ahead of it. We shouldn't be just sitting around waiting for something to happen. You can be sure that he's thinking, look, he used polonium. He used Novichok. In Syria, they use chemical weapons, and the Russians saw all of this. It's meant to intimidate and scare the hell out of everybody. He's already used nuclear weapons by talking about this. During the Soviet period, I mean, Andrew, you and I will remember the Soviet period, you know, we had the war scares of the 1980s over the stationing of SS-20 and Pershing missiles. And we knew that the Soviet Union had plans to use nuclear missiles under certain contingencies. They also had biological and chemical weapons. Putin is the kind of person, he's a throwback to the 1980s. He talks all the time about the Euro missile crisis and that sense of intimidation of Europe. But the Soviet Union never engaged in that kind of nuclear blackmail. He's gone down the path of Kim Jong-un. If you don't do what I want, I'm going to blow you up. I'm going to you know, put my finger on the button and send a missile. I'm going to use a tactical battlefield nuke so you will surrender, so you will step back. We have to understand what it is that he's doing. And why I say we act now is because we are supposed to have the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review in August at the United Nations, and Putin's just blown that out of the water because the message of everything that Putin's doing right now is everyone needs a nuke, everyone needs a nuclear weapon. The, the big countries, I mean, some of them already have them, like China, for example, who want to prevail over their neighbours and have their own territorial political disputes, they can exert their will with a nuclear weapon. I mean, why are we not intervening full on with Russia? Because they've got nuclear weapons. And he's telling all the other countries who want self-protection through this action in Ukraine, you need a nuclear weapon to protect yourself, just like you have that stalemate between India and Pakistan and you know, other regional rivalries, because Ukraine once had a nuclear weapon. So did Belarus and so did Kazakhstan. And they gave up that arsenal that they inherited from the collapse of the Soviet Union under pressure from the United States and the United Kingdom because we didn't want to see the proliferation of nukes, loose nukes. That was the whole mantra of the 1990s. And we promised Ukraine and other countries, and we've done this all the time, that if they don't seek nuclear weapons, we can guarantee their territorial integrity and independence. Well, if you're Japan and you're looking at this, you're thinking, huh, where's my guarantee? You know, out in um, East Asia, for example, Asia Pacific, South Korea, the same. They have agreed to be under the United States nuclear umbrella when it comes to North Korea or China. After seeing what Putin's doing, they cannot be sure at all. So we have to already get ahead of this. Putin has already used nukes in the sense of this political intimidation. Mm -hmm. The fact that everyone's talking about it. What does getting ahead mean? So getting ahead of it means we have to, I mean, we're having a problem right now looking at the United Nations and seeing that this is not the instrument that we hoped it would be. But we have to start that international diplomacy now ahead of the non-proliferation review session. We can't wait till August. We need to be doing it now. We need to go and talk to all of the other nuclear powers and say, look what Putin's doing here. We need to move quickly on getting the agreement with Iran, for example, to show that we actually can do something on the nuclear front. You know, we, we've been trying to isolate North Korea. But, you know, basically, Putin's doing exactly the same thing as Kim Jong-un. And he's behaving like a nuclear bully because it's weakness. This is a sign of incredible weakness on the part of Putin. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why did you decide to work for the Trump administration? Well, it wasn't so much working for the Trump administration as serving the country. I'd already been the national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia through Bush and Obama. And I was not expecting in any um, stretch of my imagination back in 2016 when the presidential election campaign started that I would end up in any of uh, the presidential administrations. I've never being a partisan political person, I'm obviously politically engaged, but not in any kind of partisan manner. I'm not a member of a political party. I've never been part of a political campaign, but I had, you know, served already in government for several years. And I had worked with an awful lot of people who were going to be detailed into the Trump administration. And look, I'd been following very closely all of the reports on Russian interference, and I was really worried about it. I'd written some articles about it. And all the, given all the work I'd done before as national intelligence officer, I was, you know, pretty clued into at least, you know, the kind of larger framework rather than the details of what Putin and the Kremlin were up to. And just this was such a devastating impact on US politics. When I was asked if I would contemplate going in, I felt I had to. I mean, it wasn't exactly an easy decision. I had a lot of back and forth. I had a lot of warnings from people I worked for, you know, given the nature of Trump. And I will admit to some, you know, naivety about the nature of US politics as well. I mean, I thought that national security would prevail, that when I got in there, given the people I knew that I was going to be working with, they would have uppermost, um, as they had in the discussions with me about how to handle this you know, difficult issue. But of course, everything was just about Trump and his personal predilections, his personal vulnerabilities, and his, you know, I mean, we're all very familiar with it, with his, you know, malignant narcissism. And Putin, you know, played on that vulnerability 
you know, manipulated Trump through flattery and things. I didn't really think he had any more compromising material on Trump than everybody else had. But it was just that vulnerability that Trump had to, you know, someone sort of coming in and pushing him in different directions. Most people could do that. You know, I hadn't fully appreciated that when I first entered. I thought that, you know, even Trump could be persuaded that he needed to push back against Russia, given, you know, what they had actually done in 2016. But of course, it turned out that he himself couldn't accept even the idea of Russian interference because he then felt himself that that put a big cloud over him winning the election. And all of that played out in this, you know, really dreadful way that we all saw unfold about, you know, in front of our eyes, even on the outside. And it being on the inside and all of this, obviously, it proved much more difficult than I'd thought it would be to keep the national security and foreign policy issues at the forefront. There's been endless speculation about why Mr. Trump had or has this admiration for Mr. Putin. But isn't it actually quite simple? I mean, he's never really met a strong man he doesn't like. He wants to be a strong man himself. That is this attraction to the, the strong men, and they're nearly all men anyway, of government. That's why he admired him. He wanted to be a bit like him. That's absolutely right. I mean, for him, Putin kind of blazed the trail. He's the first populist uh, president of a major country in the 21st century. I mean, we can think of other populist leaders, of course. But, you know, Putin comes into office in 1999 saying he's going to make Russia great again. He becomes iconic. You know, up until, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, a lot of people were still talking about, you know, the genius of Putin, the way that he looks, you know, all of these different personas he adopted over the past 20 years. He was just sort of the epitome of the man who'd got it all together. And Putin was always talking about that. He was always talking about Putin being strong and powerful. You know, I, I described in the book I wrote recently, Autocrat Envy. And Trump was open about this. I remember his interviews with Bob Woodward. It's just exactly as you said. He says to Bob Woodard, look, Bob, you know, I like the strong guys, the tough guys. You know, I don't like the others. I mean, it's basically any hint of weakness and Trump ran away from someone. So, for example, you know, he initially, he was okay with Theresa May and Angela Merkel, for example. It wasn't just that they were women, but, but, you know, that was already a bit of a strike against them. But it was when they started to lose elections, in his view, even though he himself, you know, barely scraped by in 2016. When Theresa May went for the snap election and she didn't lose, but she really reduced her majority. Indeed. Trump suddenly saw that as a sign of weakness. It's probably a reflection of vulnerability himself of thinking, whoa, you know, hang on. And same with Angela Merkel, even though she won re-election again and for an unprecedented number of terms and coalition governments. I mean, it, it was this incredible feat actually in German politics. But Trump saw that the fact that her share of the electorate had gone down again is a sign of weakness. When the same happened with Erdogan in Turkey for a while, he wondered whether Erdogan was weak. He actually, you know, openly opined on this issue and kept asking people about it. But of course, Erdogan's is ever the strong man, always, you know, kind of coming back and being quite brutal and ruthless in his own context. And that was kind of what Trump was always looking at. That's why he always doubled down. He could always be a winner. He could never be a loser. And for Putin, it's the same kind of thing. Putin always has to look like a win, even when the rest of us are looking at it and thinking, my God, if this is a victory, it's a furric one. Was January the 6th, 2021, an attempted coup? Of course it was. I mean, it was so obvious. And it really was, there was a, a straight line between the circumstances that led up to the first impeachment trial with Donald Trump asking Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to do him a personal favour to open up investigations into Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden, knowing full well that Joe Biden was going to be the candidate that he was going to be running against in the 2020 election, that effort to take the candidate out of contention 
to hobble the election. And then talking for months afterwards, in any case, after he was basically given a free pass after the impeachment, about the fact that the only way that he could lose the election was if someone stole it, basically currying and you know, already shaping out the playing field so that people would expect him to win, to kind of pave the way for, you know, regaining and uh, control or maintaining control. The whole thing was so obvious. I mean, I don't think, you know, it kind of took any particular deep analysis or deep understanding of the nature of coups to see what was going on. And I think, you know, what's critical now is the January 6th committee in uh, the United States, all of the information that they're uncovering. You know, I think that we will look at that evidence, the statements that the committee members have made so far. We can see that we, the United States, came incredibly close to still having Trump in power, having usurped power and prevented the constitutional transfer of executive authority. I mean, there but for, you know, the grace of Mike Pence, the vice president, goes the whole of, uh, of the United States democracy. And Putin... Um, it's a Putin slip of the tongue there, because Putin himself has, you know, mended the constitution to stay in power too. You know, these, we, we had another coup in 2020, but it was, you know, Vladimir Putin making constitutional changes. Thank God, you know, Vice President Pence didn't do that for President Trump. But we now know that the immense pressure that he was under and the fact that many people around Trump, you know, were basically trying to pull this off. It must follow from what you've just said to me there, that you must fear a second Trump presidency? Well, yes, I'm very concerned about it. I think there's a very good chance that he can come back again. I mean, if you look at um, President Biden's polling ratings, which I think are hovering around 40% and under, the uh, reaction of uh, people to, you know, all of the, the difficulties that we're seeing in the economy. I mean, although actually the, the US economy's bounced back, but the inflation, the rise of petrol prices. What is it you would fear if he wins? What would you fear? What I fear there is, in fact, the re-election of Trump in two different ways. One is through the Electoral College again, with um, you know, a narrow margin, as we saw in 2016, and you know, not winning the popular vote, which again, then, there's huge questions about the future of American democracy. If once again, the Electoral College, basically, for many people, will just jettison the, the votes of millions of, of Americans who you know, themselves will probably react very strongly to this. And then again, if he actually wins in the popular vote, the fact that he's winning on the basis of a lie. This is a man, Donald Trump, who said he won the last election, that the last election was stolen from him, has refused to concede defeat, and who is basically telling people that he is still the president, and that, that basically he's manipulating the election uh, system, that as somebody who's been impeached twice and skirted through it, and you know, continues to try to basically bring down the United States electoral system who has usurped the Republican Party, destroyed in many respects as a result of that. The two-party system in the United States has been the mainstay of representative democracy. He has thrown representative democracy out the window, saying there's just him. He's created a kind of charismatic death cult out of the Republican Party. I mean, this is, of course, the death knell of United States democracy and, the, I think, the tearing up of the Constitution. The US is already in a constitutional crisis. So, I mean, there are many different things I'm concerned about. And I think for the United Kingdom, for any of the other Western powers watching all of this, we've just breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, many people have breathed a sigh of relief for um, the narrow victory that uh, President Macron has just had in France against uh, Marine Le Pen, the perpetual permanent contender. It's, it's not quite narrow. It was quite convincing, but it wasn't a landslide like 2017. Well, that's kind of, that's really kind of what I mean, to be fair, but it's kind mm. of a, 
a narrow, let's just say narrower than we would have hoped for, which is when people... I mean, you won look, by 17 points. Correct. But when we look at the same thing, yes, I mean, fair enough. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, you know, putting the emphasis on that for effect. Marine Le Pen's share of the electorate has increased over time, which shows that this is not the death knell of populism. That's the problem when we look at Trump. I mean, he lost in the last election in 2020 by the same, you know, kind of margins in the electoral college that he won the first time around in 2016. And there was a huge difference in the popular vote, but he got 11 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. And that in itself is a reason for concern because populist politics is not dead by any stretch. And if Donald Trump wins or an acolyte of Trump wins, we are kind of setting the tone again for Europe and really will undermine the solidarity that we've had towards Ukraine and to um, pushing back against Russia. Let's finish with a bit about yourself. You said in Congress, and you write in your book, that America gave you opportunities you could never have had in Britain. But there are plenty of examples of people from your background making it big in Britain. Give me a few examples of Andrew, of who you have in mind. Okay, John Major, one, he became uh, Prime Minister from a pretty ordinary background in Brixton, left school at 15. Yeah, and he went to um, a grammar school initially, right? And, and, and is a man, yeah. Jim Callaghan was another one, was a below decks in the Navy at 14. I mean, there, I, I'm not saying there's not you're, a problem you're, with You're naming a lot of men, not, a lot of men well, who Margaret went Thatcher to you know, grammar schools at a different daughter. kind of era. Margaret Thatcher went to grammar school and then went to Oxford. You went to the University of St Andrews, which is one of the oldest and most prestigious universities in the world. I say that as its former Lord Rector. Yes, but let's think about how I did this. And this is what the significance of what I was trying to say in the book is about. I went to university in 1984 against the backdrop of a massive youth unemployment crisis in the United Kingdom. 90% of people, didn't matter what background they were from, had a hard time of figuring out what they were going to do next. Only 5 to 6% of people leaving school in 1984 went to university. When I got to St Andrews, let me just tell you, there was a tiny, tiny fraction of people who came from a working class blue collar background from the north of England. There were about five or six people that I knew in total. Everybody else, the vast majority of people, if they weren't from Scotland, where there were more diverse backgrounds, was from, you know, the southern part of England who had gone to either a grammar school or a private school. This is, again, a very specific time in the 1980s. And later on, in terms of the people from my background who moved off into professional life, they changed their accents, you know, and there's, again, a very small fraction of them. I knew nobody in my background who worked in the private sector when I was a kid, apart from a plumber, electrician, or somebody who owned a corner shop. In the 1980s, where I grew up, everybody worked in nationalised industry, British something, you know, coal, steel, rail, shipyards, or in the National Health Service. My dad went from being a coal miner under British coal when all of the mines closed down to being a hospital porter on the lowest rung in the National Health Service of the economic ladder. The only reason I got to go to St Andrews is because my local education authority, County Durham, from my comprehensive school, paid for me to get that education. And then I went to Harvard because I got a scholarship. So I did what I did because of a massive amount of support, either from the local education authority or later from grants and fellowships. When I got my scholarship to Harvard, 
1989, I actually had already applied to do a, a PhD or a, you know, a master's program in the United Kingdom, but I didn't have any funding. I was on a waiting list. There is no way that I would have continued without that. I had no money whatsoever. And I didn't even have money for a train fare to go to somewhere. The reason I ended up going to Harvard is because they gave me a grant. They paid for my airfare. They set me up with accommodation. There was a whole support network. So the story of my career is one where, you know, you can't always take an opportunity because you don't have the means to do so, but where lots of interventions are necessary. And even the people you mentioned there, you know, in the case of Margaret Thatcher, her father wouldn't have been able to keep his corner shop open or his shop open in Bishop Auckland County, Durham in the 1980s because everybody lost their jobs at once and didn't have any money. And if you go to the Market Street, the main street leading to the market in Bishop Auckland today, you'll see all of the old family shops closed down or partitioned because in the 1980s, they lost their customer base. So the argument of the book is not to kind of, you know, say that things haven't changed. Sure, but my point to you was not that there isn't a problem with social mobility. There is. I've spent my whole life trying to deal with it. Uh, And if anything, I think it's probably getting worse, not better. That's not my point. My point is that I don't see this huge difference between Britain and America. I mean, how you described St. Andrews can be exactly how you can describe Harvard and Yale these days. They've become a lot more exclusive than they were before. If your parents went to Harvard or Yale, you have a 77 times more of a chance of getting there than if they didn't. I mean, my point is that I don't see this distinction between America and Britain anymore. They both have major social mobility problems. Well, actually, Andrew, that's absolutely right. And that's actually the point of the book, because, um, you know, perhaps maybe how I should have started in response to that question is that when I said that America had given me opportunities that Britain did not, it was about a specific time and place. There still is a kind of a dominance of privilege within those institutions, just like you suggested, and, you know, very similar in, you know, the UK and other places as well. It's exactly that problem that, you know, I described, that persistence of the inability of people to see a pathway forward, that social mobility, people like themselves reflected at the top of government, apart from a handful. I mean, you know, you can name a few people. That's not sufficient, you know, for people to feel that they have a chance of moving ahead in life. Representative democracy has to represent people, you know, who can say, okay, that is my representative, that's somebody I can uh, relate to, and that's broken down. And that is the root of the populist politics. It's those grievances and frustrations that feed the populist politics. And one of the reasons for writing the book was to exactly what you just said there, to highlight that. But the point that I was trying to make at the beginning there about, well, where are the people, you know, like myself with a similar background is, although the United Kingdom has done an awful lot to overcome, I think, gender, racial and socioeconomic barriers to opportunity, there's a lot of mobility. The regional differentiation is still there. You've been a US citizen now for 20 years, but where does your heart lie these days? Where is it, Fiona Hill? Is it America or Britain? Well, look, I think all of us can have multiple identities and multiple affections. Um, Obviously, I'm extraordinarily fond of my adopted country, the United States. My family's there. I've really made a a life for myself there. I think um, America is an amazing place. It's very complex. It's got a lot of problems at the moment. But it's a really, you know, incredible country. And I've absolutely never had any regrets of going there. But look, I have to say my my heart, obviously, my origins are still in the northeast of England. And, uh, you know, when I go home, you know, to Bishop Auckland, where my mum still lives and all my, you know, extended family and friends are all from there, you know, I immediately feel right back at home. I mean, the oddness for me, and I think, you know, part of the thing that probably comes out in the book is I've never lived any other life than a working class life in Britain. 
I only ever lived, you know, for most of my life in Bishop Auckland, County Durham. I didn't live anywhere other than there in St Andrews University, which is obviously a pretty, you know, different uh, experience. I never lived for any length of time in London or any other part of the UK. And, you know, there are a lot of people still in Britain and also in the United States who never really leave their regions. And those regions, you know, define them. And I think, you know, part of the thing about where my heart lies is, you know, I'd really like to have everybody sort of feel that sense of pride of place and, you know, that kind of sense of identity rooted in a place and the people, you know, in which uh, and among you grew up and that you can, you know, feel, you know, really strong affinity for. I have always, you know, kind of a great deal of gratitude for the fact that I came from such a definite place, even if it was in a particularly difficult time. You know, the northeast of England, County Durham, is. Um, you know, kind of a source of pride for me, even though I left. And my dad said to me, there's nothing for you here, pet. You know, you need to go off and find other opportunity. <laughs> I still feel very much uh, shaped by that. Hence the title of your book, Without the Pet. Fiona Hill, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure. Tortoise members and subscribers on Apple Plus can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode, which comes out every Friday during this series. It's called Inside the Interview. You can join our newsroom by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneal 50 That's five zero and all one word. Research for this episode was by Robert Jackman. It was mixed by Suryo Klong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.